And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. That's it. That's the last time you're going to hear that video intro, huh? <laughs> it's about time, huh? It's only been over a year, but we've heard that over and over again. Some of you are waking up in the middle of the night. What's that voice? What am I hearing? Yeah, that'll be it. This is the finale. This is the end of our uh, teaching series through the Gospel of Luke as we head into a new year. What a great journey this has been. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 24, very last chapter of the Bible. We'll be looking at the very last few verses, verses 36 through 53, certainty in a world of doubt. I can't think of a better way to spend my last day of 2017 and heading into a brand new year 2018 than to hang out with friends and worship God in in song weren't those wonderful songs that we just sang and in the study of of scripture of his words so good to have you with us on this last day of the year the finale of our teaching series heading into a brand new year we're titling this weekend's message unshakable 2018 Unshakable 2018. Grab your sermon notes out also. You can follow along. Tertullian, an early church writer and leader, said, the blood of the martyrs is seed. That's a heavy statement. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, the reason he said that was because Christianity grew explosively through the Roman Empire in the first century and beyond by the way Christians faced life, suffering, and death. No one faced life, suffering, and death like Christians. Listen, they were unshakable. They were unshakable. Why is that? Because they had certainty in a world of doubt, and Christ was a living presence in their lives. That's what this whole series has been about. You can go all the way back to chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke. Dr. Luke wrote this. After all of his research, he said, I want you to have certainty in about the things that I have taught you, that you would have certainty in a world of doubt and that Christ would become a living presence in your life. That was his heart, and I hope that you're experiencing more of that as a result of going through this uh, particular teaching series. So that's why they were unshakable, because they had certainty in a world of doubt, and Christ was a living presence in their lives. Now, we have spent over a year in the Gospel of Luke We've examined the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we now come to what is known as the Great Commission. This is just prior to Jesus ascending to heaven, and he's going to commission his, his disciples. I, I kind of consider this a little bit like a locker room talk. You know, that's why I like in the movies, sometimes those, those locker room talks, those times when they, they gather everybody up and they give them the big rah-rah, the big talk, and then they send them out. That's, that's right here. I think I couldn't think that this is probably the best text we could deal with as we end 2017 and head into 2018, kind of preparing us for the future. And so, as we've spent time here, why why were they, and these were the questions I began to kind of work through this last couple weeks, why were they so unshakable in the face of severe persecution, torture, suffering, and death? Because that's what they're going to face. And yet, they turned the Roman world upside down, better yet, right side up. I mean, they, they transformed the whole Roman world. How did they do that? What was going on? What did Jesus say to them? And uh, what can we learn from their lives that would make us unshakable in 2018? That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me once again? Let's pray, and then we'll dive into our text and unpack these notes. God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence. And Father, we 
We know that being unshakable isn't about surviving as much as it is about thriving, being content, courageous, and compassionate, even when circumstances are uncontrollable and unexplainable. We pray through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to see more clearly that it's not what happens to us, it's not, it's not our circumstances, but what happens in us, our character that matters most, that our Christ-like character, being unshakable, is best developed through, through the work and the power of your Holy Spirit, our consistent practice of spiritual disciplines, that is, habits of grace, and our response to both the good and the bad circumstances of our lives. Help us to also see that our best defense is a good offense and that you are for us and not against us and therefore the gates of hell won't prevail against us as we head into a brand new year. We pray these things in your son's glorious and beautiful name and everyone said, amen. amen. So let's walk through this. I want to read a little bit and then we'll talk about it, read a little bit, talk about it. Eventually we'll get to our notes and you can fill in the blanks and we'll work from there. But uh, locker room talk, he's talking to his disciples, he's getting ready to dispatch them, send them out, he's going to head to heaven, and it says here, chapter 24, verse 36 is where we begin our reading, as they were talking about these things, what were the things they were talking about? Well, they were talking about the sightings of Jesus, the tomb is empty, it's post-resurrection, there's almost kind of a sense of excitement, but there's also a great deal of fear, and so as they are talking about these things... Jesus himself stood among them. So Jesus all of a sudden appears in this room with these disciples. The Gospel of John, John chapter 20, verse 19, says the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. So they're a little bit frightened over all these events. Their king has just been crucified, but the tomb is empty. There's been sightings of Jesus. So they're kind of all huddled up. And guess who appears in the room? Jesus. He shows up. And so guess how they respond. Notice what it says here. What are the first words that he says to them? Peace to you. Why is that? But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? That would be, that's a good statement for us. That's a great question for us as we head into 2018. He says, peace, peace to you. And then as a result of that, if you understand the implications of the peace that I, that I have for you, access to the throne room of God and all that he's accomplished on the cross, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now I'm thinking, broiled fish? How about fried fish or something like that? Why broiled fish? He's got a resurrected body here. He can eat anything. That's what I'm thinking. Okay, maybe I kind of chased a rabbit there on that one. But it's interesting. Why would they say broiled it's because this isn't legend, this is, this is eyewitness. That's actually what happened. Which, by the way, I think with our resurrected bodies, we can eat anything, okay? Just to settle that right now. But that's just all they happen to have right there. And he's making a point here, and we'll get to that in a minute. Let me talk a little bit about these verses here before we move on to the next verses. Easter proves Christmas was real. Easter proves Christmas was real. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he came to do. That's what I'm saying. So resurrection, resurrection of Christ. 
This resurrection of Christ is not, not just historical, evidential, factual event, but it should be a daily reality. So it has both future implications, but also present implications. Because through the resurrection, through all that Christ accomplished on the cross and then resurrecting, he conquered sin, death, hell, the grave. Oh my goodness, we can live fullness of life. So the, the, the present implication is that we have access into the throne room of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, here's what's amazing, and you're going to see this in the text as we work through it, but the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, dwells in us. That's uh, Romans 8, 11. So that's the, one of the implications of this idea of the resurrection. But th that's a present implication, and, and they're astounding, but there's future uh, implications to this resurrection. So it's not just a historical fact, but it should be a daily reality in our lives that, that as we look to the future, all that he wants to do for us. Now, what's fascinating about this is that Jesus is not teaching us about the truth. Jesus is not just teaching us about the truth of the resurrection, but also the very nature of the resurrection, future implications of what's going to happen to us when we die and then we are resurrected from the grave, our future. So you see in this story, Jesus passes through the walls. He almost just shows up, just shows up in the room, goes right through the walls. He has sensory engagement with the world. He said, hey, come here, touch me. You can feel me. In fact, let me eat. Let's have some fish, broiled fish. <laughs> it's crazy. And then he's, he's saying, hey, it, it really is me. So this is what is in store for us is what he's showing here. This is kind of a glimpse. Now, how many are familiar with the, the, the phrase bucket list? When I say bucket list, well, you guys know what I'm talking about here? So oftentimes when we hit the end of the year, we kind of look to see if we've finished our bucket list, and we'll kind of establish maybe a bucket list for the coming year, or whatever that might be, uh, along with resolutions or whatever. But the fact is, is that I think that uh, the, the greatest bucket list achieved or missed is nothing the greatest bucket list achieved or missed in this life is nothing compared to the glory that we will experience with our new bodies and new relationships in the new heavens and the new earth. That's, that's one of the little things that I think that we can get from this as, as post-resurrection, the resurrected Christ. You will miss out on nothing. You will miss out on nothing. No regrets in heaven other than maybe not sacrificing more for our Savior. I think one of the things he wants us to understand is that we will sing and dance and eat and drink and hug and love in heaven unlike ever before. So oftentimes I hear people see when someone passes on and maybe they passed on at a very young age or later on in life or mid midlife and they say, oh, they're going to miss out on so much. They're not going to miss out on anything if they went to be with the Lord, with our resurrected bodies, new heavens, new earth. Oh my goodness, and that's part of what he wants us to understand. So our present, present implication is the spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, Romans 8, 11, but the future, you can learn a little bit more about it besides this text, also in Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about our resurrected bodies, and then Revelations 21, new heavens and the new earth. Now, let's continue reading, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, this is, sounds familiar. Yeah, a couple weeks ago we studied this. Remember the two guys, two disciples on the road to Emmaus? They were pretty bummed out about what went down with Jesus. They, we were hoping he was the Messiah. He got crucified. What are we going to do? And guess who shows up? Jesus walking with them. 
And let me read this cross-reference here, Luke 23, 25 through 27. And he said to them, that is Jesus, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken. Old Testament, what the prophets predicted. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So what is he saying? All the scripture is about Jesus. If you read God's word and it doesn't take you to Jesus, you're reading it wrong. It should take you to Jesus. You should experience Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. In John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Now, these Pharisees were diligent about studying the Scripture, but they missed the big E on the I chart. They missed Jesus and all of that. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Listen. That's what you need to always keep in mind. I think there's a lot of people that uh, don't know this and, and miss the, the big point of what the scriptures are about, the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's, it's not a book about what you must do to be right with God. It's not primarily a book about what you must do to be right with God. It's primarily, it's primarily a book about what he has done through Jesus Christ to make us right with him. Now, if you read it like a book that you're supposed to do as opposed to a book that it's about what has been done, you're going to turn it into like Aesop's fables and life lessons and here, boys and girls, let's learn some good life lessons so that we can be good. No, that's not the point of the book. That's not the purpose of the book. Yeah, there's certainly good moral lessons in there, but it's in response to what he has done for us. If you reverse that, it becomes religion. You're trying to earn your salvation. You don't obey God to get his blessing. You have his blessing through Jesus Christ. Therefore, you obey him. You follow him. You respond to him. It makes all the difference in the world when you understand that. You always, that it's foundationally about Jesus, our rescuer, our redeemer, the one who loves us, who came to rescue us, who reconciled us to the Father. Okay, okay. You're getting all worked up there, Pastor Ray. <laughs> Sorry. So the whole Bible is about Jesus. Okay, I got it. We got it. We got it. I wrote it right here on my notes, Pastor Ray. Okay, enough, enough. Okay. No, I'm not finished yet, okay? Not finished. So the Old Testament promises God's rescuer. The New Testament presents God's rescuer. I love what Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible says. She summarizes the Bible right here. I love it. Two ways, different ways that she summarizes it. So when you think of the Bible, this is what you need to think of. The Bible isn't a book of rules or heroes as much as it's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace to rescue the one he loves. Isn't that good? And she also says here, the Bible is an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. So when you read the Bible, that's what you should be thinking about. Brave prince, young hero, came to rescue me and reconcile me to the Father so that I can have relationship with him. Let's continue reading verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So he's talking, this is Old Testament prophecy. This was all predicted. He's just saying, if you guys would read the scripture, you'd have known that this is how it's all gonna go down and you'd have been better prepared for what happened. 
And so, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance from, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What's the promise of the Father? It's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And of course, we know that Dr. Luke wrote Luke, Gospel Luke, and then he also wrote Acts. So the next book, if you continue reading from, from here to, uh, to the book of Acts, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon them, Acts chapter 2, pretty phenomenal. That's what he's talking about here. Now let's talk a little bit about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. John 16, 7, Jesus told his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. They were kind of freaked out about him going away. And he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. How could this be true? Well, the only, the only thing that could be better than to have Jesus beside us would be to have Jesus inside of us through his Holy Spirit. That's, that's the promise. That's the promise he's talking about. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's verse 49 of our text. And so what is he talking about here? This is what I think he's talking about, and this would be some really good advice for all of us. There's a difference between having the Holy Spirit living within you and then being baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's not overcomplicate it here, okay? I know that sometimes we can kind of get a little bit complicated, but you really want the Holy Spirit to live within you, but it's gotta be more than him living within you. You wanna be saturated with the Holy Spirit. Thus, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's what they experience in Acts chapter two. So you want to be spirit-filled. I believe that Paul gives us really good uh, teaching on that in, in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Are you familiar with the text where he says, it's Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. He says, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's making this interesting contrast between spirit-filled life and being drunk. Now, why would he do that? Because I think, I think they're like and unlike in, in various ways, and it gives us good understanding of that. By the way, there's gonna be a lot of people here getting drunk tonight, and I, I've never really understood that. Why are you gonna be inebriated and bringing in the year just out of your mind? And it's probably because life's just too difficult. It's just, I, I just wanna be numb to reality, and, and I just wanna, that's how I'm gonna deal with my life. I, I don't want that. I've never wanted that. I wanna be in touch with the reality. But, but there's a difference between the two, uh, these two. Spirit-filled life is like and unlike being drunk. It is like being drunk in that it makes you happy and courageous despite circumstances. But it's unlike being drunk in that it doesn't decrease reality being drunk decreases reality. That's what people want. They want to have their reality decreased. But being filled with the Spirit increases reality that Christ is for you and not against you. That's why it makes you happy and courageous to be able to face anything. So being drunk decreases reality. Being filled with the Spirit increases the reality of the fact that God is for me and not against me. That's what you need more than anything to face 2018. Regardless of what went down in 2017, you want to be able to be unshakable in 2018, you need a Spirit-filled life. You need the Holy Spirit to come upon you and empower you and to open your eyes to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. I'm, I'm convinced that's one of our biggest uh, issues in life is that we just have such a small, very small view of God. 
that I am overwhelmed by the trials of life, I am disillusioned by the problems of life, and I'm deceived by the, the pleasures of life in direct proportion to that I'm out of touch with his greatness and his goodness. And, uh, and so the spirit-filled life intensifies the presence of God the wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power, the significance of being called his child. When the Holy Spirit lights that on fire in your heart, he begins to reveal Christ to you in ways you've never experienced before. You begin to realize there's no difficulty too big. There's no temptation too overwhelming. And, and that's what he's saying. You need to go and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you receive my power, my grace, you're, you're filled with my spirit. It's remarkable that in all of his writings, that is Paul's writings, when he prays for the people that he's writing to, he prays for his friends, in his prayers there are no appeals for changes in their circumstances even though they lived during many dangers and hardships. Now there's nothing wrong with praying for changed circumstances, but Paul never prays for circumstance enhancement for his friends. This is what he prays for. He prays for Christ's entrancement. He prays that they would be so entranced. That's a spirit-filled life, by the way. They're so entranced by Christ that Christ is for you and not against you. You're unshakable. I mean, you're unbreakable. You're going you're gonna to be able to face anything with, with contentment and courage and compassion. And that's, that's, that's what he prays for, not just Christ entrancement, but character empowerment. In fact, let me give you an example. Ephesians 1, his first prayer in Ephesians, and these are, he's writing to believers. He prays for enlightenment, that their eyes of their heart would be open to see the reality of the beauty and the glory of Christ. And then Ephesians 3, he prays for empowerment. Okay, enough said. I need to keep it rolling, don't I? Okay, you guys still with me? You guys? Okay, here we go. So let's, let's finish up this uh, text so we can dive into our notes. And so, see, so he talked about spirit-filled life, and then now the ascension. Jesus is going to ascend to heaven, but listen to what happens here. Verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with what? What are those two words? Great joy, great joy. Not small joy, not medium joy. What kind of joy? Great joy, great joy. Indescribable, indestructible joy. They were seeing more clearly than ever before. They began to realize, oh my goodness, what Jesus has done through, through his life, death, burial, resurrection. And so they were, they were blown away, great joy, and were continually, it was a habit of their life, they were continually in the temple blessing God. This is God's holy word to us. Now, here's where we're headed. Um, so I'm gonna talk to you about some, what would be classified as habits of grace, spiritual disciplines, and if you want to be unshakable in 2018, you need to begin to practice these uh, habits of grace or these spiritual disciplines, and here they are. Let me walk through them, and then I'm gonna give you a metaphor to kind of help you to, to see where you might be spiritually. But this is, you don't need to write these down. We'll go over each of these, but uh, the first one is you're gonna need to walk with God. I think that's what he's teaching us here. You're gonna walk with God, live his word, contribute to his work, make an impact in this world, all for his great worth, all for his great worth. And uh, that's where we're headed with it. Now, let me first of all give you a metaphor here to think about as it relates to where you might be spiritually and in relationship to these, these spiritual disciplines. Metaphor, imagine your soul is a boat 
with both oars and a sail. So where are you spiritually? Are you sailing? Are you rowing? Are you drifting? Or are you sinking? Now let me, um, let me walk you through each one of those just to see where you might be. Are you sailing? Sailing means you are living the Christian life with the wind at your back. God is real to your heart. You often feel his love. You see prayers being answered. When studying the Bible, you regularly see remarkable things and you sense him speaking to you. You sense people around you being influenced by the spirit through you. That's sailing. How about rowing? Are you rowing? Rowing means that you are finding prayer and Bible reading to be more of a duty than a delight. God often, though not always, seems distant, and the sense of his presence is fairly rare. You don't see many of your prayers being answered. You may be struggling with doubts about God and yourself, yet despite all this, you refuse self-pity or the self-righteous pride that assumes you know better than God how your life should go. You continue to read the Bible and pray regularly. You attend worship, and you reach out and serve people despite the inner spiritual dryness. So you got sailing, rowing, now we come to drifting. Are you drifting? Drifting means that you are experiencing all the conditions of, of rowing, spiritual dryness and difficulties in life, but in response, instead of rowing, you are letting yourself drift. You don't feel like approaching and obeying God, so you don't pray or read. You give in to the self-centeredness that naturally comes when you feel sorry for yourself and you drift into self-indulgent behaviors to com comfort yourself, whether it be escape, eating and sleeping, sexual practices, or whatever else. So you're either sailing, rowing, or drifting, and now we come to sinking. Eventually, your boat your soul will drift away from the shipping lanes, as it were, and truly lose any forward motion in the Christian life. The numbness of heart can become hardness because you give in to thoughts of self-pity and resentment. If some major difficulty or trouble were to come into your life, it would be possible to abandon your faith and identify as a Christian altogether. So where are you? Where are you spiritually? I mean, this is a good time for us to evaluate our lives. Are you sailing, rowing, drifting, or sinking? Now, let me give you a warning here. If you're drifting, you're not going to be unshakable in 2018. All it's going to take is a little storm to blow into your life and before long, you're going to be sinking. If you're drifting, it's just a matter of time. You're going to be sinking. You're going down. And in fact, it tells us in Hebrews 2.1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift, drift from it. Drifting is deadly in the Christian life. You don't want to be drifting. You don't want to be drifting because you're going to, eventually, you're going to be sinking. So what do you do if you're sinking or drifting? You got to start rowing. Got to start at least rowing. 
You got to get involved. So I'm going to give you what that looks like. What does that mean that you start, you at least start rowing? And uh, you will be unshakable in 2018 if you will. And by the way, what I'm going to share with you here are the characteristics of what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. This is what we've taught for the last 26, 27 years here at Desert Breeze. And we take you through what is known as the game of life. And we take you through all five of these Gs. It's a G process. See, we're here to help unchurched people become fully devoted followers of Christ. We want you to be unshakable. We want you to have a rock-solid Christian life and to know Christ in every way. And so this is, this is what will help us to do that. And Jesus spells that out for us as his last words to his disciples before he ascends to heaven and as he dispatches them into the world, as they transform their world, that whole Roman world. Now, so here we go. You will be unshakable in 2018 if you will walk with God. If you will walk with God, verses 36 to 43. That's a genuine Christian. That's someone who's made a commitment to Christ and to a local church family and then, of course, uh, the natural response to that would be to make that uh, public through water baptism. We do a couple water baptisms every year here and have the privilege of baptizing anywhere from, from 50 to 100 folks a year. It's fantastic. We love it. But that's part of that. That's, you're beginning to walk with God. You have a relationship with God. Let me walk you through our text here to show you how Jesus is spelling this out to us. Verse 36, what were the first words that Jesus said to, to his disciples when he came into the, wor- into the room? Peace to you. Peace to you. Why would he say that? Why would he say peace to you? Because that's what he accomplished on the cross is that we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through what Christ has accomplished on the cross, we now have access into the throne room of God. We have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What was the second thing that he said to them? Verse 38. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now listen to me. When I'm troubled and doubts arise in my heart, as they do you, it's because I'm not living in the reality of the fact that I have peace with God. It's when I live in the reality of the fact that I have peace with God, then the peace of God begins to rule my heart and mind. If the peace of God's not ruling in my heart and mind, I don't somehow try harder and try to muster it up in my heart. I go back to the fact that, wait a minute, what you accomplished on the cross for me, I have, I have you in my life. I have peace with you. Not based on my performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus. It's what he's done. It's not D-O. It's D-O-N-E. It's been done for me. Did you notice how he helps to resolve their, their anxiety here in this text? Why are you troubled? Why, why do you... Doubts arise in your hearts. I think what he's talking about here and what he's doing is so psychologically healthy as he's trying to help us to process. When I'm stressed out, when I'm anxious, what do, you, what do I do? What do you do? Notice what he says. He says here in verse 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. So what is he doing? He's saying, think out the implications of this. I'm alive. I just conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. I'm here with you. You understand what this is about? Why are you stressed out? Why are you anxious? Why are you envious? To the degree you understand that you have peace with God is to the degree that you'll be able to overcome all of those issues in your life. And so we we have to think. The foundation of faith is thinking, thinking out the implications of all that Christ has done for us. I must have an encounter with the resurrected Christ Jesus spiritually and believe that he conquered sin, Satan, and death, reconciling me to the Father. And then notice what he says in verse 41. Why did he say this? 
have you anything here to eat? He's not hungry. He's got a resurrected body. I mean, he, he doesn't need to eat. What's the point here? I think he's speaking kind of metaphorically. He's showing us something. Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So from that encounter, we've got to learn to cultivate intimacy with him daily. So he's just something every day, like eating, that he's with us, even in our eating. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Cultivate intimacy with him. So 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 31, I think is what it says. It says uh, that we live for his glory in the everyday, in everyday life. Practice his presence through a continuing conversation with him. See, when you take refuge in Jesus' saving work on your behalf, his presence is your greatest gift, is his greatest gift to you and life's most satisfying reality. I, I put a cross-reference here. It's, it's an old verse that I memorized years ago. I'll, I'll uh, recite it in King James Version, but maybe you're familiar with it. It's Revelations 3.20. How many are familiar with Revelations 3.20? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus talking to us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him, is the word, it's have, have supper with him, eat with him. Why, why do you use that kind of language? We can walk with him. We can have relationship with him. I mean, how often do you, you think about God? If you want to be unshakable in 2018, you've got to think more about him than just what we do here on weekend services or from time to time. But you can, he's with you every day. When you realize who it is that walks through your day with you, oh my goodness, commune with him, talk to him, ongoing conversation, interaction with him while you're eating, sleeping, exercising. And by the way, you need to have people that you're surrounded with. So if you're a genuine Christian, you're going to be committed to Christ and to a local church family. You need to be surrounded by people that help to stir that up within you. So that's the first one. Walk with God. Here's the next one. Live his word. Verses 45 through, uh, 44 through 45. So he, he basically says in those verses that all of Scripture is about me. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. If you want to feel deeply about Christ, it's called doxology, it's called worship, you must think deeply about him. It's theology. Worship rises or falls with our concept of God. That's why we're going to kick off a brand new teaching series next weekend. We're going to study through the, the, the book of Exodus. <laughs> Can't wait. I'm excited about it, okay? <laughs> and maybe if you hang out with us, you'll get excited about it too. But you're like, Exodus? Isn't that in the Old Testament? I didn't even know there was a book by that title. Yes, there is. And you'll learn a lot by going through that book. But here's my heart for you. And the reason why I think we're headed in that direction is because like I said, one of our biggest problems is that we are disillusioned by the problems of life because we don't know his greatness. We don't know the greatness of God. We are deceived by the pleasures of life because we don't know the goodness of God. We have a small view of God. Our worship rises or falls with our concept of God. In American theology, we got a small view of God. The book of Exodus, oh my goodness, it's going to give us a big view of God. That's what we need more than anything. And, and it's our theology, the depth of our theology, the deeper our theology, the higher our praise and worship. And, and so, if you want to feel deeply about Christ, you must think deeply about him. Our hearts cannot be inflamed by what we know very little of. So in your daily time with God, so when we talk about, so 
So walk with God, live his word, live his word. Don't just read it, but begin to live it, live it out. And in your daily Bible study, don't look for life lessons as much as you should crave to get a glimpse of the only one who can satisfy your soul. It's, it's to, meant to encounter Jesus, to know Jesus, to experience Christ in your life. The scriptures are meant to redirect our wandering hearts to their true destination and most satisfying delight, our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you don't feel your way into beliefs. You believe and behave your way into feelings. So you study. You gotta be disciplined. You, if you're drifting, you gotta start rowing. Otherwise, you're gonna start sinking. I see it happen all the time. Start rowing. Start rowing. And rowing means you walk with God. You live his word. You get into his word. And let his word get into you. Let me, let me just say this. This is what you're trying to accomplish. You want his voice to be the loudest voice in your life. Amen. Do you hear me? You need to hear his voice above all other voices. By the way, you're listening to a lot of voices. You got your own sinful nature. You got the voice of the world. You got the voice of your adversary that's coming after you. But you want his voice loud and clear. And, and when, you, when you begin to see and hear his voice... If his voice is the loudest voice in your life, then your selfishness and your self-absorption will be turned into love. Your hopelessness will be turned into joy. Your anxiety and fear will be turned into peace. See, here's what the Lord put on my heart for DBers here this year. A lot of what I've already said, but this in particular, the Lord's been really impressing this on my heart. I want you guys to, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I want you to live his word. In fact, Colossians 3.16 is, is a verse that's been ringing in my ears. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So the deeper the theology, the higher the doxology, the healthier the psychology. I mean, you're going you're to have soul satisfaction and life liberation unlike ever before through your, through your theology and your doxology. And so let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. The reason why we're unable to teach and admonish one another much is because we don't have much of God's word in our heart. I want God's word to dwell in your hearts. First uh, Peter 2, 1 through 3, he says, so, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. We all need that. We need to put that away. How do we get rid of that stuff in our lives? How do we experience life change? Well, he tells us right here. He says, like newborn babes, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So, so here's what he's saying. Once you've tasted of his goodness, you're gonna dive into his word because you wanna encounter him more regularly and consistently and then that's what transforms your life. Deep theology, high doxology, woo! You're beginning to see Christ unlike ever before. That transforms your life. And that makes you unshakable in 2018. Now, I'm gonna, I want to turn you on to uh, what is known as the Bible Project. How many are familiar with the Bible Project? Probably not very many of you. There's a few of you. The Bible Project is a, is a phenomenal tool I want to turn you on to. And I want you to start going to this website. And so, so let's just say, like most people, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And so you start reading through the Bible, and you read through Genesis, not so bad. Genesis, Exodus, well, we're going to be studying that, so yeah, I'll read that. And then you hit Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you go, oh my goodness, what is this book all about? That's when we kind of uh, 
hit the eject button, we're out of there. It's like, I don't even understand this book. This doesn't make any sense. What in the world is this book all about? And then you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I'm not going to read some old boring book by the name of Numbers. Just a bunch of numbers. Listen, if you go to the Bible Project, in about five minutes, they'll give you the whole summary of that book, and it will make so much sense to you. You'll go, wow, i got to dive into this book. I want to dive into this book. That makes sense. And as you work through it, it'll make a difference in your life. And so I would encourage everybody here to, uh, to go and watch the one on Exodus. We'll be giving you little excerpts from it and maybe show you some of those videos. But I'm going to show you a video here in just a minute. And it's, it's the fourth of a series of videos from this website on how to study the Bible. So watch this video. So the Bible is a collection of books written in different literary styles like narrative, poetry, and prose. And most of us are familiar with these kinds of literature. Yeah, we all know a narrative when we see one, like The Hunger Games or The Great Gatsby. And most people can recognize poetry, whether it's Walt Whitman or the songs of Bob Dylan. And every day we're surrounded by prose and news articles or essays. Now all of these examples are modern American literature in that they came from this time period and this region of the world. But there's also medieval English literature from another place in time, or ancient Greek writings from this place in time. So each time period and culture produces its own unique kind of literature. And in order to read the Bible well, we need to keep in mind that it comes from this part of the world and was produced in this basic period of time. So what's unique about ancient Jewish literature? Well, a key feature is that it lacks a lot of the details that modern readers have come to expect in stories and poems. And this makes it seem really simple. But actually, it's very sophisticated literature. Every detail that is given matters. And that's great, but the lack of detail means that stories are often loaded with ambiguities. I mean, take one of the first stories, Adam and Eve in the Garden. Where did this talking snake come from? And why did God allow him there? Why didn't Adam and Eve die on the spot like God said they would? And who's this offspring of the woman who will destroy the snake but is bitten by it? Yeah, so many puzzles in this story. And some of these are questions that we have and that are not important to what the author is focusing on. But some of these ambiguities are intentional. Intentional? Won't that lead to bad interpretations, people filling in the gaps with their own answers? Well, that's a risk the biblical authors took in writing this way. We all tend to impose our own cultural assumptions onto the Bible, but they apparently thought the risk was worth it. These oddities are really invitations into an adventure of reading and discovery. What do you mean? Well, for example, the strange promise about the offspring of the woman crushing and being bitten by the snake. That word offspring is a clue to pay attention to genealogies, which, lo and behold, run all through the biblical narrative. They trace the lineage from Eve all the way to King David and his offspring. And in the New Testament, Jesus is connected to the offspring of this royal line. Now, when you read the prophets, Isaiah connected this king to the suffering servant who would die on behalf of his people. And then in the book of Revelation, there's this symbolic vision. And can you guess? It's about a woman and her offspring. It's Jesus and his followers who conquer the dragon by giving up their lives. Yeah, so each part of the story there is loaded with ambiguities, but altogether, it makes sense. 
And this is the literary genius of the Bible. It forces you to keep reading and then interpret each part in light of the others. This is feeling complicated. I don't know if I can do all that. Well, you're actually not expected to notice all of this by yourself or all at once. This dense way of writing forces you to slow down and then read carefully, embarking on this interactive discovery process through the whole biblical narrative over a lifetime of reading and rereading. Ah, okay. Meditation literature. Yeah, in Psalm 1, we read about the ideal Bible reader. It's someone who meditates on the scriptures day and night. In Hebrew, the word meditate means literally to mutter or speak quietly. The idea is that every day for the rest of your life, you slowly, quietly read the Bible out loud to yourself and then go talk about it with your friends, pondering the puzzles, making connections, and discovering what it all means. And as you let the Bible interpret itself, something remarkable happens. The Bible starts to read you. Because ultimately, the writers of the Bible want you to adopt this story as your story. So this ancient Jewish writing style, it must create unique types of narrative and poetry and discourse. Yes, and we'll explore all of those literary styles starting next with biblical narrative. Uh, that's one of four. That's, actually, there's more than four, but that's the fourth one in this series on how to study the Bible. That's just that part. But if you were, I, I've just recently been studying through First Thessalonians, and I went through, and I, I went back to the five-minute video that gives you the overview multiple times, and then I begin to outline the book. I could teach the book. In fact, I, I noticed it was part of my conversation with my family and friends this last week. It was just naturally a part of me. So it's just a, it's a phenomenal tool. I would encourage you to do that. Five-minute video, you can get an app for it. You can look, watch it. It's a great way to study the Bible. And I'll tell you what, I mean, even go to the book of Leviticus. That book's going to make sense to you after they lay it out for you. In about five, five to seven minutes, you're going to watch that, and you're going to go, oh, my goodness, that's brilliant. Now, keep in mind that anything that I show you, any websites, any books that I encourage you to read, always apply Acts 17.11 to it. Acts 17.11, what's that? The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was teaching was truly the word of God. You gotta always do that. So even with this, these are humans, these are people that are putting this stuff together, but you've always, you've always gotta filter it through God's word. You always ask yourself, okay, is that what the Bible actually teaches? Is that true? Is that, so you don't check your brains at the door, you always think through the process with any books, with anything that you, you study. Always do that. Promise me you'll do that. Okay, yes, please, please do that. Now, let me ask you this question before we move on, is that how do you go from rowing to sailing? How do you, because I can't help but think that probably a lot of us would fall into the category of rowing. And let me just be honest with you. I'm the dude that gets up here and teaches week in and week out, and sometimes I find myself doing more row, rowing than sailing. Did you know that? Is that okay for me to confess? So, so how, do you, how do you think that I've moved from rowing to sailing? I love sailing, but I don't always sail. Sometimes I'm just rowing, but I keep rowing. So how do you move from, from rowing to sailing? I think Jesus answers that for us in verse 45 and verse 49 in our text. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then in verse 49b, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's talking Acts 2. So here it is, here it is. You keep rowing and you pray like crazy that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes, will give you that enlightenment to begin to see things in his word that you've never seen before. And you ask for his empowerment. It's supernatural. 
but you keep rowing. You keep rowing. And I row, I row week in and week out, and man, I'm telling you what, I wouldn't trade it for anything when the Holy Spirit is on my, with, you know, on my back, pushing me down the lake, experiencing the presence of God, sailing. Oh, I love it. And I row and pray so that I can sail. And you need to continue to do the same. That's how you do it. And so you walk with God, live his word, contribute to his work. That's the next thing. This is a giving Christian. So a genuine Christian will be a growing Christian, will be a giving Christian. And he says in verses 46 through 47, basically he's given the gospel message and that gospel message needs to go deep into our hearts and, and that's where it gets deep into our hearts here as we gather weekly and as you get gather in small groups. And, and Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So genuine Christians or growing Christians will be giving Christians. As you're filled up with Christ, you're going to want to give out. You're going to want to let your life not be a reservoir, but be a channel, be a river. Giving Christians give of their time, their talent, and their treasure to their local church family. Giving Christians realize that God has uniquely shaped you for service. Now, in our game of life, we take you through a process. It's an acronym to help you to discover your uniqueness and how God has shaped you. The acronym is SHAPE. So S is for spiritual gift. H is for heart. A is for ability. P is personality. E is uh, for experiences, life experiences. God uses that for you to stir up in others greater appetite for Christ. So ministry is about building believers, and all of us play a role in that here at Desert Breeze. And, uh, and so it's, it's just, it's quite fascinating. God invites us to discover gifts we never knew we had and to be used by him in ways we never dreamed or imagined. It's easier to discover your shape through ministry than to discover your ministry through your shape. In other words, you get involved in ministry and that's how you discover it, better than taking an inventory. Though you can take the inventory through our game of life, but you're better just to get involved. Roll up your sleeves, get involved, and you'll begin to discover things about yourself as you minister to others that you never knew. And there's a couple things that happen as you do this, when you begin to give, as you walk with God, live his word, contribute to his work, there's a fruitfulness and a fulfillment. There's a fruitfulness, there's a synergy, and then there's this fulfillment, there's a satisfaction. The synergy, if you're familiar with the, the language and the definition, synergy happens when the output is greater than the sum of the parts. So there's almost like a multiplication. I saw this right from the early days here at Desert Breeze. We started Desert Breeze in my home with 16 of us and we grew to 40 and immediately the, this church outgrew me and my ability to minister to all the needs. But the folks that started coming started getting involved and it wasn't like one plus one equals two. It was like one plus one equals five and 10 and there was this synergy. It was multiplication and our impact that we've been able to have. And I was just thinking, about this last year in 2017. Oh my goodness, do you guys have any idea the impact that we've had in this community? Because all of us together, giving of our time, our talent, and our treasure has created a synergy and impact that otherwise we would never be able to, to accomplish on our own individually. And so there's that synergy. And I was, as I was thinking of this, None of us is as smart and strong as all of us. In fact, ducks flying in a V formation add 71% to their flying through drafting. 71%. So what we can do together, pretty astounding. 
as opposed to individually. But there's also satisfaction. What's the difference between, in fact, ask the person next to you this, uh, the answer to this question. What's the difference between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee in the Holy Land? There's a major difference between the two. Real quick, do that. Okay, anybody want to yell out the answer to me? What's the difference? Dead Sea is dead, huh? Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, Dead Sea is dead. It's actually, it's, it's got a lot of salt in it, but it's dead because it has an inlet with no, no outlets. Sea of Galilee is alive. It's vibrant because it has an inlet and it has an outlet. If you have nothing but inlets but no outlets, you're going to become dead. By the way, you're drifting. You're drifting. There's, there's aspects of God, there's growth, there's maturity, there's intimacy with God that you will experience uh, by getting involved, walking with God, living his word, contributing to his work. Jesus said to his disciples, remember the woman at, at the well that they had the disciples and Jesus encountered the woman at the well? Disciples go in town for food because they're famished. They need something to eat. They come back to give Jesus food and he's not hungry. And he says, I have food you know nothing about. What is that about? I thought he was hungry. In fact, he says that in John 4, 20, uh, 4.32. I have food you know nothing about. His food was to do the will of the Father. That there was a nourishment. There was a nurturing that took place in him as he ministered to the woman at the well. I could say to you that week in and week out, I have food you know nothing about. That as I minister, oh my goodness, how God ministers to me. There's an old song that uh, I grew up singing, and I'm going to go ahead and sing it to you here this morning. In fact, let me go over here on the keyboard and, okay, I don't even, I can't play, but uh, let me see if I can recite it. You know how songs, sometimes you can't recite it, but you can only sing it. I'll try to keep from singing it, okay, because that'll be frightening, but uh, to be used of God, to sing, to speak, to pray, to be used of God, to show someone the way, I better start singing the next part of it. I long so much to feel the touch of his consuming fire. To be used of God is my desire. There's something about being used of God. And I, the last night's service and then this morning's first service, I had opportunity to pray with people. And anytime I've been able to minister to people or, or touch someone in the name of Jesus, there's something about that. Oh, my goodness, you can do the same thing. Whether it's greeting people at the door, it's picking up paper in the parking lot, helping out with our children's ministry. There's opportunity for you to be used by God to, to experience his consuming fire within your heart as you minister to others. There's nothing quite like it. Nothing quite like it. So walk with God, live his word, contribute to his work, and then make an impact in this world. This is the going Christian. Genuine, growing, giving, going. You are my witnesses. He's giving us the great commission. There's not one, two, three, or four. There's five great commissions in the Bible. The one is here in these verses, 48 through 49. The other ones are in your notes there. Matthew, Mark, John, and Acts. Great commission. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You are my witnesses. The word for witness there literally means martyr. To be so certain of, of the saving message of Christ that you are willing to give your life for him. So once you've tasted a fellowship with God, you're going to want anyone else you care about to, to experience it too. If you don't, it's because what you have isn't very potent. 
But the more you walk with God, live his word, contribute to his work, you're gonna wanna make an impact in the world. You're gonna wanna let people know about Jesus. There's two parts to sharing your faith. John 4.29, the woman at the well, when she encountered Christ, she went back to her group of friends and family and impacted their life with the gospel message. And she did two things. Share your heart, point to Jesus. You see her share her heart in verse 29. And it says, he told me all that I ever did Come and see this man. That's pointing to Jesus. Share your heart, point to Jesus. She is not hiding her heart, the wellspring of her life. She's just natural about how, how she deals with problems and, and how, if you're just natural about how you deal with problems and make decisions and establish priorities, don't hide that and then point to Jesus. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, we're almost finished. Let me give you a quick example of that. Uh, this is, uh, my son works for a media outlet here. He's actually uh, it's stationed out at, uh, their offices are out at Anthem. It's called Liftable Media. It's a conservative media outlet. They have about 100 employees. It's conservative, uh, no fake news here. It's real news, it's good news. But one of their uh, departments is called the Wild Card, and I'll follow that regularly because it gives a lot of sporting updates. Let me share with you uh, what was on that uh, called the wild card. December the 12th, 2017, at 11 and 2, the Philadelphia Eagles have been the NFL's most dominant team on the field this season with a high-scoring offense and stifling defense. One of the key factors behind their success is star quarterback Carson Wentz, who has thrown for 3,296 yards and 33 touchdowns. Unfortunately for the Eagles, they will not have they will not have to play the rest of the season with, they will, they will now have to play the rest of the season without their rock as Wentz suffered a torn ACL late in Sunday's game against the Los Angeles Rams. This was December the 12th, 2017 now, keep in mind, within the first of this month. Despite the pain of enduring season-ending injury, Wentz handled the situation with utmost class, focusing on his faith. He released a video across his social media pages revealing his emotions and his thankfulness to Eagle, Eagles fans and other NFL players for their support. Listen to what he says, and I quote, Obviously, it's been a rough day for me personally. I'm not going to lie. You know... I have a ton of faith in the Lord and in his plan, but at the end of the day, it's still been a tough one. I know the Lord's working through it. I know Jesus has a plan through it. I know he's trying to grow me in something, teach me something, use me somehow, some way. This will just be a great testimony as I go forward. Is that crazy? Do you hear in that? Share your heart, point to Jesus. Share your heart, point to Jesus. You want to evangelize the world? Share your heart, point to Jesus. He gave a great example of that right here. And then walk with God, live his word, contribute to his work, make an impact in this world, all for his great worth. Glorifying, genuine, growing, giving, going, all for God's glory. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continually in the temple blessing God. You don't have to choose between living for God's glory and living for your maximum satisfaction. They are one and the same pursuit. When you live your life for God's glory, you experience a quality of life that all the success in this world can't give you and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. So let me ask you this, here we go. We're wrapping it up, this is it. This is the last day of 2017, we're heading into 2018. 
So where are you? Where are you? Are you sailing, rowing, drifting, sinking? Listen to me. If you're sinking, get some friends around you. Help. They'll help you get back in the boat so you can start rowing. Call the church office. Get plugged into a small group. Do that. Where are you? Are you genuine, growing, giving, going, glorifying God? Where are you in that process? Maybe, maybe you know Jesus. You've made Desert Breeze your church home. Your next step would be growing. Get in God's word. Connect to other Christians in a small group. Maybe you're genuine and you're growing, but you need to get, start giving. Get plugged into some ministry opportunities. Man, there, there, are, there is no shortage of opportunities here at Desert Breeze. On the back of the card there where you're sitting, there's a whole list of places where you could get involved and, and God could begin to use you here at Desert Breeze. Where are you? Where are you on this? Next weekend, we kick off a brand new teaching series, Exodus, A Way Out. God provides the way out from things that enslave our Egypt and leads us into all intimacy with him, our promised land. I'm gonna talk about how to have blessing even in bitter times. That's chapter one. Read that. You can also go to Bible Project and watch the video that gives you the overview of that. So let me give you a blessing as you guys head out of here. Here's my blessing for you for 2018. May God be most glorified in you as you are most satisfied in him, as you walk with him, live his word, contribute to his work, make an impact in this world, all for his great worth, becoming, becoming unshakable in 2018. In Jesus' glorious and beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.